Broadcasting from the News Radio 102.9 KARN Radio Center and Studio 1B, it is Gluttony Unplugged with Scott Romine. Hey, Scott Romine here. Hope you're having a great Saturday. We're going to talk about something. I know maybe it's geeky to some of you, but there again, uh, 48 years old and older probably will love this topic. I know it's one of my favorites. G.I. Joe. Of course, there's been a toy line since forever, and we're talking with, I think, probably the number one fan of G.I. Joe in the world, Carson Metaxas, and you're in North Carolina, correct? That's right. Yes, sir. I'm in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, capital city, and uh, G.I. Joe was born in 1964 as the world's first action figure. Yeah, and he was a 12-inch figure, and of course, there are guys older than us that still collect those, and it's still kind of a big deal to this day, isn't it? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, there's been a pretty pretty much constant toy development with the exception of maybe two years here, three years there. From 1964 to now, there really hasn't been like a dormant decade for G.I. Joe. Uh, it's amazing the longevity and productivity that Hasbro has had with this toy line. That's not constant. That's not that's not a given. Most toy lines are not constant. There's a handful of exceptions like Ninja Turtles or Star Wars or, you know, Marvel. Uh, well, Barbie is probably the only thing that sure. rivals G.I. Joe, really. Sure, in in yeah. longevity. It's been continuous as well. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. The origins of the original G.I. Joe, the big tall guys, they went on to have what accessories and everybody knows Kung Fu grip. And what's the oh, yeah. value of some of that stuff these days? Well, so there's a, uh, you know, I have a friend that's a good friend, Matthew McKeeby, who is an expert on all things 1964 to 1976. That is the 12 inch era uh, that basically got this brand underway. It started out as a very uh, military-focused uh, kind of real-world toy um, where you had the Marine and the sailor and the astronaut and the pilot and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and, uh, but there was, there was Vietnam War-era fatigue, and so they ended up evolving the brand around 1970 to be more you know, adventure team, you know, tame the tiger or hunt the octopus or whatever. Um, so they definitely evolved the brand around 1970 to stay in kids' minds and not maybe turn parents off to kind of the the wartime themes uh, during a period where our country was really over it in terms of war. Didn't astronauts become part of it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Astronauts have been a big part. The space capsule was one of the most popular 12-inch sets, and they've replicated that in the three-and-three-quarter-inch scale as well. Uh, you know, if you're looking at my favorite era, 1982 to 1994, Agreed. that's the G.I. Joe, a real American hero uh, line. And so what that era did was create characters and personalities. The the great Larry Hama that has now written uh, nearly 300 uh, sequential issues of the G.I. Joe, a real American hero comic, also wrote all of the file cards, That's right. the bios that you would have on the back of the packages. He created a universe. He turned plastic into people. Yeah, he and, did. And uh, gave them gave them personalities and, and uh, psychological profiles and all kinds of good stuff like as a kid that just really turned your imagination on. But uh, my point there was in the three and three quarter inch scale that I'm into, the 82 to 94 Real American Hero, they actually had a um, one of their biggest play sets was the Defiant, which was a giant spaceship with That's this right. rolling gantry and these big doors that open up. So space was a big part of that. 
And uh, in the early 90s, 93, 94, maybe 92, they created a subline called Star Brigade that was completely focused on space. They actually created a couple alien characters in 1994. Um, so, yeah, they were out there. They were at that point trying to blunt Kenner's attack. Kenner was thinking about bringing Star Wars toys back to market in the early 90s, and they were able to blunt that a little bit by creating Star Brigade. Yeah, the so power of the on. force line, I think, <laughs> is what probably what you're talking that, about. I, uh, I think that's what it ended up coming out as. Yeah. But I think that ended up being several years later. Yeah. That, so before we move on to talking the 80s stuff, and my favorite area is the same as yours, what is considered the holy grail in in that early 12 inch line because i know we've got a lot of older listeners as well that that sure that know that Absolutely. that line yeah sure uh so i think the nurse figure is kind of the holy grail because uh, just to be candid it didn't sell well and they pulled it early and so there weren't it wasn't produced in massive quantities so now that you're at this stage where Usually if people are collecting something, they're a completist and they want to get one of each. Yep. There's more there's more demand for that figure from collectors than there was from kids back in the day. Uh, it did not prove to be successful. They pulled it off the shelves. They didn't make many, and so it's incredibly hard to find now. So now you're known as like the number one fan of G.I. Joe uh, on the I internet. I would never say that. I know you <laughs> would, but I, I... I would never say that. I read yeah. about you on the internet, and so it's, it's great to okay. talk to you. I... I've always wondered what was your first introduction to GI Joe as a kid. What what is the first figures? What started it? Yeah, it's interesting because everybody had a different entry point with GI Joe. I mean, we were very fortunate back in the '80s that there were multiple ways to get into it. There was the comic book on spinner racks. There was the toy uh, that was on shelves, just aisles and aisles full of this stuff at Kmart, Walmart, any toy store you walked into it was amazing. Um, and then there was the cartoon on TV. And so for me, it was the cartoon on TV that got me first. I watched that cartoon religiously. I begged my parents to buy me the toys for probably at least a solid year before they finally bought me my first toy. Uh, and I think I, I don't remember in the terms of the sequencing when I got into the comic, but it wasn't far behind. And, uh, yeah, so I was, they got me with the trifecta, man, toys, comics. Yeah. And, uh. Yeah, I, I was just all in. They created a universe that was completely immersive, and it was so much fun. It was diverse. It was uh, exciting. You know, I still watch line. it to this day. It's live on YouTube all the time. I watch it all oh, the yeah. time. Uh, I, yep. I didn't initially got, like it. Uh, the the early the first twelve figures or whatever. I just I was still solid mm -hmm. Star Wars and and He Man, okay. and the cartoon sold me. So, okay, sweet. Well, I mean, the cartoon is, uh, I like to say that the cartoon was optimal for younger children, right? It, it's so playful and wild and bombastic. It's it's very silly. It's it's just good fun. Uh, the voice casting was the best in the business. Wally Burr was the voice director, and he just cast the best voices uh, for that cartoon. The, and the illustrations were great by Sunbow. Yeah. Um, it so was they, very they just, similar. Tell us work. the connection to Transformers, because a lot of the voices are the yeah. same. Correct. Wally Burr was the same voice director for that. Um, so, yeah, they obviously had a bunch of crossover there. So Hasbro was running Transformers and G.I. Joe in parallel. G.I. Joe started first in 82. Transformers started a couple years later. Uh, they had basically proven successful with the G.I. Joe model, had made a boatload of money by 84, and they licensed the Transformers toys out of, uh, I guess, Takara out of Japan. I'm no expert on Transformers either. Sure. But, uh, 
they were doing well enough with GI Joe that they were able to invest in another property and bring it out in a very big way using the same kind of rollout with comic books, toys, and cartoons on TV for Transformers. And as we all know, that was a huge hit, arguably a bigger hit than GI Joe. I, I would say Transformers is a bigger hit internationally. Yes. And that's not to take anything away from GI Joe. GI Joe sold in so many countries, everywhere from South Korea to Russia to South America. It's all over the place. Um, so that's not to say that GI Joe was not successful internationally. But, you know, when you look at, like movies and box office numbers and stuff, Transformers is more ubiquitous. Well, speaking of that, and most people wouldn't know this, as I understand it, these toy lines and things in other countries were called like action force because GI Joe is a real American hero. Maybe it's hard Correct. to sell an American hero to French kids. So what were the names <laughs> elsewhere? Well, I think even the cartoon had a different name elsewhere, yeah, right? So, you know, the action force story is a unique one. There was a company in Europe that was or in England to be specific that was already producing a line of action figures that were more like star Wars quality T crotch kind of uh, design where you didn't have the ball joint hip articulation. You didn't have the ball joint uh, arm shoulder and neck articulation. Um, but anyway, they were already creating toys and it was called action force and they had their own characters. So what Palatoy, which is the company that was producing those, what they arranged was to license the GI Joe molds and properties uh, from Hasbro to release those in Europe. And that was, in line with uh, Hasbro's international licensing model for G.I. Joe, they would take their molds after they've used them for a couple years in the States and they would ship them overseas and they would let other companies mass produce these things. And sometimes they stayed very consistent with the lore that was created mm -hmm. in the United States uh, in terms of character names and designs, colors, decos. You know, the, the, the patterns and colors that they choose sure. to put on these figures. Because you could, you could mold them in whatever plastic you wanted. You could add additional paints for whatever you wanted. You could do new tampos with new logos on them and call them something entirely different. Hold that so thought. we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back here with Carson Metaxas talking G.I. Joe. You're listening to Guatney Unplugged on News Radio 102.9 KARN with Scott Romine, brought to you by Guatney Automotive Group. Hey, Scott Romine here, talking one of my favorite topics today. And, and, you know, I tend to think we're talking about something only a young kid would care about. But the truth is, we're talking about something 40, 50 year old, 60 year old men care about. We're talking about G.I. Joe. And we're talking about the fact that in America, of course, we know him as a real American hero, G.I. Joe, and he fights Cobra and all that. But overseas, they sold a different story to kids in other countries. So you're telling us the origins of Action Force? Right. So, you know, Action Force was created by a company in, in the U.K. Uh, called Palatoy. Before they ever even licensed anything from Hasbro, they were making their own toys. So uh, basically, Palatoy ended up licensing the G.I. Joe properties, the molds, characters from Hasbro. They created their own comic books. They created their own figures with their own uh, decorations. Uh, some of those some of those figures that came out in Europe with different kind of, um, you know, visual styles to them are extremely popular with U.S. collectors that, you know, we've already exhausted collecting all the U.S. stuff. So now it's everybody's looking international for new and exciting uh, versions of these figures and characters and vehicles and play sets to chase. Did they have uh, the cartoon? Did they change the intro, the logo and the head of the cartoon or what? Yes, they did. They definitely rebroadcast re a cartoon, and I do not believe they used the G.I. Joe, Real American right. Hero. I don't think they used that jingle at all. 
Um, and they, they've sold VHS cassettes. You know, there's laser discs that you can find. Uh, cool. They basically would. And, and it's the same with the comic books. They reproduced some of the comic books, but they also created their own comic book content for Action Force. So it just it, it, it varied from country to country how much they just stayed in line with what the U.S. did and, you know, basically photocopied it or how much fun they had with it and pushed it in new and different directions. You know, some of the South American stuff is extremely popular. There's a, a subline called Forca Fera where they basically paired an action figure with an animal. And it was a, you know, junk little animal. Sure. Mold. It wasn't like our, our, our articulate kangaroo that, you know, had knees and, and shoulders and timber you know, didn't ankle move. Joints. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, uh, but so when you pair big boa, who's the Cobra boxer with a kangaroo, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> you could picture them yeah. training together. Every, everybody's seen videos of kangaroos boxing. So, uh, so it, why it not? was a fun set. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're so talking. Us, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so it gives us it gives us U.S. guys uh, something else to chase and sure. a lot of fun. It, that's one of the things that extends the fun of the brand for decades. We're talking with Carson Metaxas. He's from North Carolina. He's the biggest GI Joe fan you're going to find anywhere. Tell me this: Who at Hasbro said, "Let's do GI Joe again, and let's make him the size of these Star Wars guys"? Right. So, you know, I think a lot of people were sad when G.I. Joe went away uh, initially in 1976. That's when the 12 inch went away. They did something that was space based called Super Joe. And it, it was it was not great. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to pump it up <laughs> as more yeah. than it was. If, if you look at uh, 3dsuperjoes.com, there's an archive of Super Joe stuff uh, up there by my buddy Steve Stovall. Anyway, from 77, 78, when Super Joe was there, that was kind of defeating, I think. Sure. It didn't go well. It was an eight-inch line. They were basically kind of, you know, Mego had proven that eight-inch scale, so they gave that a shot. And really, there was the OPEC oil embargo in the 70s that made the cost of plastics uh, cost prohibitive, and the profit margins were getting smaller and smaller on these big toys. So they gave it a rest. This is the one time, you know, that they tabled it from 78, 79, 80, 81. This is probably the longest um, kind of dead zone for G.I. Joe as a brand. Well, Don Levine uh, was working at Hasbro at the time. He was a vice president of Boys Toys. He remembered, and I talked to him and his daughter about this maybe six months ago. They were in a hotel when the United States hockey team beat Russia in the Olympics. And it was the miracle on ice. And the whole bar went crazy. And Don looked around and he's like, you know what? Patriotism is back. <laughs> it's, it's it's God bless America. Let's yep. do this. You know what I mean? And Joe sure. was was always unabashedly pro-America. You know, it was it was a oh yes. a patriotic brand. And so that's when uh that's when Don Levine said, Okay, we need to bring G.I. Joe back. It's it's been long enough. Because Don was a uh, World War II vet, I believe. Uh maybe Korea. I think Korea definitely. Uh and so he had that military background and they everybody that was working at Hasbro had you know, family members that had served. And so it was a patriotic thing at first. And, you know, so they evolved it to keep it alive with adventure team, but uh, the oil prices really killed it. So that it was hard for them to like, let it sit dormant for that time. So once, once Don had this revelation that, you know, American kind of patriotism is back, uh, he went back to Hasbro. He rallied a team, uh, Ron Rudat, who was a designer at the time, Kirk Bazigian, who was a marketer at the time, and tasked them with coming up with some creative creative ideas for how to bring G.I. Joe back. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ron, 
and and a couple of those guys had been doing it on their own, trying to slip things into presentations here and there. But Don kind of gave them the uh, authority and autonomy to actually put some time behind this. And they put together a proposal to Hasbro management and Hasbro management said no. And they didn't give up and they came back and they presented again. And I think on the second or third time, Hasbro management finally said, look, it's not there yet. You're not tell- you're not selling me on a compelling story. I don't know what it's going to take, but it's not quite there yet. Well, they ended up having a meeting with Marvel Comics and Jim Shooter was editor in chief at the time. And Marvel Comics agreed to help Hasbro launch this toy and to create the intellectual property and, you know, kind of the characters and the storyline that Hasbro would need to put this, you know, toy front of mind with kids. And the brilliant thing they came up with was you couldn't advertise toys on television with animation for longer than seven seconds back then. Well, you could you could advertise a book for 30 seconds of animation if you wanted to. So they mm. created a comic book and they created 30 second beautiful animations yep. that were really just selling us the same toys that they were selling in the toy versions of the commercials. Sure. So it was a brilliant it was a brilliant workaround of this law. And and so when, you know, Kirk and and Ron um, and, and Bob Levine went back to Hasbro management and said, we have the big idea. Marvel's going to launch the comic and we're going to do something that's never been done before. We're going to do animated advertisements for the comic book on television. That was the breakthrough that Hasbro senior management needed to see to believe that they should invest in bringing G.I. Joe back. You know, Carson, to me, the comic book was better than the 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 cartoon. I mean, the store, the characters were more developed. And, and honestly, I always felt like the comic book is like the cartoon my mom doesn't know about. I mean, it was violent. Right. People died the, in the comic book. It was a lot better. You know, it, it well, well, I would say, I don't want to say better because I don't want to take anything away from the creators that worked very hard to produce an entertaining cartoon. But they were the limited difference. with the cartoon, what they could do with it. They absolutely – you couldn't show anybody being killed. You no. couldn't show anybody being being hit with gunfire. It was a kid's cartoon, you know, so they were catering to a different audience. That's the first yes. thing. The, the second thing is by the nature of creating 80-something episodes in a short period of time, it was written by a half dozen to a dozen different people. So you're not going to have the continuity of you know storylines and sure. personalities – and you're not going to have that world building feel that you're going to have with the comic book when it's Larry Hammer writing everything. And so he knows what everybody's been through and where they're going, what the long term character story arc trajectory of these people are. You just don't get that with the cartoon. So the cartoon feels more juvenile, but that's by design. Sure. Oh, great, yeah. Sure. I love it all. But yeah. But yeah, the comic book, the comic book was mind blowing. It made me a comic book fan for life. It was the first comic book I picked up. And it created a, a lifelong passion for that medium. I'm the same way. So. Absolutely. That was the comic book that started it for me. You know, I always mm-hmm. thought if they took the stories from the comics and made the movie look exactly like the Arnold film Commando, you would have mm-hmm. had an awesome G.I. Joe movie. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Uh, even people have said like the Expendables, you know, where you got each. Yeah, that would work too. Coming in with different different kind of expertise but commando Um, truly was a gi joe movie i mean he was basically a character and bennett was basically a cobra bad guy i mean it really that's what it was (laughs) you know if you think about it oh exactly you know it's still my favorite film but i'm surprised that the the military never 
created a gi joe unit i'm surprised there's not a real thing or maybe there is and what none of us even know about it i don't know well i would say the uh the joint special operations command the USASOC, uh the the special operations forces that combine people from different units from different branches of the military is the closest thing we have that's yeah that's true we got to take a quick break we'll be right back here on guatney unplug talking gi joe with number one fan carson metaxas be right back You're listening to Guatney Unplugged on News Radio 102.9 KARN with Scott Romine. Brought to you by Guatney Automotive Group. Hey, Scott Romine here, talking uh, one of my favorite subjects, uh, GI Joe. Of course, I'm a huge fan of the '82 to on uh, small figures, but I know we have some older listeners that love the 12-inch line from the '60s and the '70s. We're talking with Carson Metaxas. He is. One of the biggest G.I. Joe fans uh, in the country, probably in the world, I'm sure. Do you have the entire line? You've got all the ships and all the stuff? Yeah, so from 1982 to 1994, again, that's my favorite time period. So that's kind of where I spoke, I focus my spending budget on this stuff. But uh, yeah, I have every single carded figure from 82 to 94, every vehicle uh, and playset with the exception of just a handful now there's a few exclusives like store exclusives that were sold in smaller quantities for shorter periods of time that are crazy expensive and uh they come up much less often so there's still a handful of those that i'm missing but yeah for the most part i've, I've got one of everything you got the aircraft carrier i do have the uss flag aircraft <laughs> carrier. i remember when that thing was 120 bucks it's one of the only things i never had as a kid you hear that a lot, yeah, I'm sure. Not, not a lot of us, not a lot of us did have it. If there was a kid on the block that had it, you know, he was the rich kid that everybody was a little bit jealous of, but also wanted to go hang out with him. Tell me about how real people became GI Joes, like Sergeant Slaughter and William the Refrigerator Perry. How and why sure. did that come about? Yeah, I think, you know, again, this was about five years into the line and they were just thinking, what can they do to build hype and excitement around this thing? And Sergeant Slaughter was uh, a natural, obviously, because of his military ties. Um, so that, you know, when you looked at wrestling as a whole, wrestling was hugely popular in the 80s. You know, it was the golden era of wrestling. If you're going to look at all the wrestlers and, and try to pick one, Sergeant Slaughter was a, a, a natural and the fact that, you know, he had served at Paris Island and he was a, a you know, drill instructor. Well, it's a, it's a natural segue uh, into the G.I. Joe storyline of we're going to bring in this guy and he's going to basically wipe the beaches with all these people at Paris Island kind of thing. So uh, it was just a natural foray into it. You know, they, they tried. Uh, they actually had a contract um, lined up with Rocky Balboa, with Sylvester Stallone. That's to bring right. Rocky into the line as a trainer as well. Uh, Rocky uh, Sylvester Stallone ended up licensing out uh, Rambo to a competing toy manufacturer. And once Hasbro found, found out about that, they pulled the deal, which is unfortunate because they already had sculpts in place. Like they were, they were, they already had presentation artwork and everything mopped up. They were very close to rolling out this, this Rocky GI Joe figure. And I'm still so sad because I love the Rocky movies well, growing up. He was in amazing. a comic book. I remember there was he a page in the, one of the comic books, yes. and in the next issue, yes. they said, we're sorry, Rocky is not part of G.I. Joe. You're absolutely right. It's a G.I. Joe Order of Battle, which was basically, for those that haven't read it, it was like the file cards on the back of the comic yes. with some cartoon artwork 
uh, just introducing all of the characters to the comic book reading population. So yeah, they, they got very close to making this Rocky toy. They published him in order of battle and they had to redact it on the next issue. So that was, that was a shame. Uh, the fridge, I'm not sure how they lined up the fridge or why they, why they locked in on the fridge. I mean, they had just won the Super Bowl, So they probably just looked like, okay, what other live action people, what other real world people are just so hot right now. And the, the bears, the Chicago bears were just really hot. They had just won the Super Bowl. And the fridge was one of those big, just gigantic personalities. So they, they licensed to deal with him. That one didn't go very far. They didn't do a whole lot with the fridge. You only got one figure from him and, and never anything ever again, but it was an on-card uh, promotion for 1987. So they, they didn't really do any others. Um, there, it wasn't like they looped in a whole lot of real world people. I know Don Johnson voiced someone falcon. in a cartoon yeah yeah he was falcon yeah yeah in, in the feature film he was he was lieutenant falcon yep not a, not everyone knows that the gi joe i guess duke was supposed to die in that cartoon and when they realized there was so much backlash from optimus prime dying dying right. in the transformer film that was changed right Let's be honest. Duke did die in that cartoon, right? They killed him. And, and the only way that they came back and patched it up at the end when they, you know, they saw that some kids were traumatized by seeing Optimus Prime die in the Transformers movie. And so they made the very late decision to add one scene at the end of G.I. Joe, the movie where Doc gets a phone call from elsewhere. It's like, oh, I got the update on duke he's gonna be okay and everybody yeah. claps and cheers <laughs> that's like literally all they added yeah to the, uh, to the film to kind of hokey yeah, to go back on that yeah a little bit what yeah, uh died in the, yeah died he died in the comic book all the time we could handle this yeah you know? exactly so tell me so, it's amazing that so many people held on to these things and never opened some of these toys mm-hmm. what's the you know what's the everyone knows that like a boba fett on card is priceless what what are some examples of that in the gi joe world well i think anything that was mass manufactured i'm, I'm talking hundreds of thousands even upwards of a million uh, per carded figure in its heyday in the mid 80s uh, they were easily producing a million of each figure um, those are not impossible to get you can find pretty much every carded figure from 1982 to 1994 on card now it's going to vary how much pain it's going to cost your your wallet um, i would say some of the key figures you know snake eyes storm shadow cobra commander uh, Destro, 1983 Destro. So those figures are are easily mint on card a thousand plus these the the market has exploded um you know we all have our collecting life cycle oh sure From 2008 to 2013 for five years i collected every carded figure from 82 to i think 90 at that point i had a ton of fun doing it i was sending some of them down to georgia to get graded by the afa my collection was like afa rated 80 or better so they're all just very very nice condition dude i sold my 1982 to 1986 uh afa 80 or better collection for twenty six thousand dollars in two weeks oh my gosh a lot of people don't understand toys are very much a, a, an appreciating asset at this point. I don't regret it because I needed the money to purchase my home and I got with you. the down payment. So well, you can find it. You can fall it, find it all again, you know? And I, and so since then I have found it all again and it cost me significantly more. And that brings me around to my point, which was from 2013 to now the market ha- has doubled or tripled in value. 
It's amazing. And especially with COVID just over the last year and a half with more people spending time at home and tapping into simpler times, tapping into nostalgia, the, the nostalgia marketplace, you know, across the board has risen significantly since everybody's just stuck at home and looking at, you know, nostalgia on their computers. So it cost me a lot more to get my stuff back. Luckily, I got most of it back before COVID. That's fantastic. Hey, we're out of time. Can you tell everybody the website where they can keep up with you and you sell the artwork, correct? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've been very fortunate in that I've met many of the creators that made this stuff back in the day. And obviously, I've collected everything. And I'm, I'm from a graphic designer background. I went to design school at NC State. And uh, so what I've done is, you know, I started out creating a, you know, a not for profit, no ads, no money to be made archive called 3d joes it's the number three the letter d and then j-o-e-s so if you just go to 3djoes.com you'll see 360 interactive photography of every single toy from 1982 to 1994 and then i taught a couple other people to do what i do and they've documented 1964 to 1976 on vintage3djoes.com and then the 7778supergoe is 3 d and we're actually expanding i'm bringing uh, several other team members in and the big news is we're going to be developing out 1997 to now uh, under a few different archivists so that's that's in the works uh, that's the books fantastic. that i created it's it's called collecting the art of gi joe and it's because I, I'm an artist, and I was absolutely blown away by the painted artwork of Hector Garrido and later Doug Hart on the G.I. Joe line, and it had never been collected and preserved in any way. And I just thought that was a tremendous, yeah, you know, glad there was you a did tremendous it. vacuum there. And so, you know, we spent me, me and my buddy Chad Huckle, uh, you know, I collected everything, photographed and scanned everything, and he helped me with a ton of the Photoshop restoration work because it's not just take, taking sure. pictures of the stuff and reprinting it. We spend hours and hours, about 400 hours per volume. There's six volumes, so that's over 2,000 hours of time doing the restoration work necessary, and then adding in interviews to add context and you know, just add some next level quality value to this stuff. And there's a bunch of interviews on the websites too, that you all can enjoy. So the, the book series though, is called collecting the art of GI Joe. And unfortunately I printed a thousand sets. Those are gone. That's <laughs> a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, it's it's true. a bad thing. Cause you, your listeners can't go and buy it today because ah. sorry, it's sold out. But the good news is we're, uh, we're working on an omnibus hardcover that's going to collect all six volumes in one giant 12 inch by 13 inch tabletop coffee table book. And I'm talking 550 pages. This thing is going to weigh like six pounds. It's incredible. Wow. But it's every single, every single piece of painted artwork from figures, vehicles, play sets, peripheral products, all the licensed stuff they did from trash cans to soap dispensers. If it has a unique painting on it, we've collected it, documented it, restored it and got it all together in this one big volume for everybody to enjoy. So please be on the lookout for that. Uh, you can sign up to the newsletter on the bottom of any page at, on 3djoes.com. And as soon as the Kickstarter launches, you guys will know. Well, thank you so much. Carson Metaxas, North Carolina, number one G.I. Joe fan, 3djoes.com. We'll see you guys next week on Guatney Unplugged. <laughs>